This is the Command Your Brand podcast, where we talk to world changers, visionaries, and founders, people that are doing big things and changing this planet in a positive way. We're learning their stories, techniques, and exactly what you need to know so that you can do things in a big way. The time is now. Get ready to take command of your brand. Hey, what is up, everybody? Jeremy here. And guys, I'm really interested in the conversation we're going to have today. We have Rich Vinhays with us today, and we're going to talk about collecting, we're going to talk about value, and we're going to talk about, you know, really protecting the value that you're creating and the things that you are collecting. Rich, thank you for hanging out with me today, man. It's a pleasure, buddy. Very nice to meet you. So I want to find out first and foremost is, you know, you are making a big impact in the world of collecting, but I want to know if like for you, how'd you get there, man? Because for me, I don't see somebody getting in this realm unless it's something they like to do themselves as well. Yeah, so I I've been a collector for a very long time, but I I started my career for the better part of the past 15 years in management consulting. Like that's mm. kind of where I've made my bones, so I worked for a very a very prestigious consulting firm, worked as a tech transformation leader, focused in the financial services space. And it was great. Like don't get me wrong, I was in it for 15 years. It definitely had its entrepreneurial components, but I've always I have tons of other interests. Like I've definitely dabbled on the entrepreneurial side many times. And to a certain degree, that job allowed me to kind of lead a business within a business, right? So just because it was a very large company, I started with six employees. I grew it until we got to about 50, 55 by the time I left. So it's like a healthy 35, $40 million a year book of business. And it was great, but I have been part of a watch collecting community, as nerdy as it sounds. Like I've been part of that for a very long time. And I started collecting watches when I was in high school, early into high school, when I kind of got bit by the bug. And ironically enough, at the tail end of my time at my prior firm, I, my a buddy of mine that I was always seeing in the same circles, like we were always going to the same events. And he had asked me to invest in a a collectible based business. And I basically laughed in his face and said, no, because I'm, I tend to be a little bit more conservatively cut when it comes to that might have something to do with my immigrant upbringing. But what ended up happening was around that same time after I said no, another buddy of mine, we were catching up and he basically said, hey man, one of the companies that I helped kind of launch is about to go public. And this was going to be a boom to his fund and to himself personally. And then he went out of his way to remind me that he had asked me to invest in that company maybe four years prior. <laughs> and I was like, oh. They never forget that stuff, right? They never forget. And of course, I did some mental math. I'm like, that was like a clean million dollars I would have made had I you know, went with what my friend recommended. So of course, I went back to my other friend with a little bit of FOMO in my mouth. And I'm like, look, buddy, here's a check. And let's just try this. And this individual, I had no idea of, I truly didn't know too much about his background outside of the fact that we're mutual collectors and all that good stuff. One thing led to another and that little side investment ended up turning into a a half a million dollar fund that I helped him kind of shape 
and figure out. And not because he asked me to, but because I wanted to make sure I didn't just piss away my money. I was like, all right, mm. can I please research the inventory that we're building, the targets? And of course, I did like what consultants do. And I put together a very elaborate financial calculation on whether or not I'd be making my money back. And I was like, this is good. This feels right. Ironically enough, that relationship led to Wax and where mm. we're at. So he basically said, look, I really need your help to evolve this venture-backed startup that I've been incubating called Wax. And that's how I got pulled in. And it took me a little bit, you know, actually, I probably turned him down two or three times before eventually saying yes to kind of make the leap. But here we are, maybe a year and a half later at this point. You know, you mentioned in the watch collecting world. So I have this friend, Dan, and he collects watches like crazy. And the yeah. thing he was saying is one of the biggest reasons he likes to do it and it is the value of them. He said a lot of times they hold their value in relation to a lot of other things. And I'm curious, like, you know, as a collector, you know, like how valuable are things that you collect? How do you look at the value of those things? Well, look, so there's a couple different ways of looking at this. So our, as a company, we wax, we kind of focus on the collectible the entire collectible segment, not just watches. It just so happens that a few of the founders were all serious watch collectors. So that's just kind of an incidental benefit that it's all about. But if you look at like the overall market itself, like the total addressable market, it's basically $300 billion, right? Wow. And if you look at where it's going within the next couple of years, like it's not unreasonable to think that by 2025, we'll be closer to about 500 billion. If you kind of zoom in on the global watch market, we're looking at at about 70 billion right now. Mm. You know, so go to your earlier question. The value of these things is obviously super subjective, but what's happened, especially since the the COVID, COVID basically led to a, a boom in collectibles in general. So mm. this market grew. Is that because they're like tangible? Is that why? Is like it's something you can actually have? Yeah, I think it's a few reasons. So I think there was a level of boredom and nostalgia during COVID lockdown that caused okay, yeah, people. Yeah, I, I agree that I had some nostalgia. <laughs> right. You have people kind of kicking around their closets and looking for, you know, cars and uh, cards and things of that nature that might be of value. I think the reason, the why, it's probably a combination of a few things. It's mm-hmm. there's more people investing in things that they just generally enjoy, right? And the community side that comes with that. I think collectibles in general also being seen more as a legitimate alternative investment, whereas in years past, it is probably seen as more of a hobbyist function. And certainly for some of the assets that have gotten more hot in recent years, right? So if you think of like the common stuff, and we had mentioned this in previously in our initial chat, you're into stamps and things of that nature, right? So some of the most common collectible categories, fine art, stamps, rare coins, stuff like that, but like the I collect books too. And I think books don't have yeah. a ton of value. Like I have like books from the turn of the century. Like I have a copy of War and Peace from 1936, which to me seems pretty valuable because it's around the time World War II started. But like, I don't know sure. if they hold the value that other things do. A hundred percent right. And this is what we found. I think the punchline is that around the time we were kind of spinning up wax is when this massive boom in value of collectibles started taking place. And I think it was just a perfect storm of people realizing that these things have greater utility or value than, and probably more fun than just investing in the stock market, right? Especially for a younger generation that is probably not as pumped up about like investing in just, you know, zeros and ones than they are and maybe holding a watch for a couple of years. And then it's value going up two to three X. 
And that's unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which side of the equation you're on, what's just happened naturally. I think what's happened during this stretch of time, collectibles have grown at such an accelerated pace. There's a reason why when you go into a high-end luxury watch shop, like there's no watches available because Mm -hmm. they're all being waitlisted for, you know, larger and larger buyers that have buying history. So watches that you could get access at retail, that's usually kind of like the rub. If you get the watch at retail, walking out the door, sometimes you could make two or three X on top of the purchase, which is madness, right? That's absolute chaos. And I think over the past maybe eight, nine months, there's probably been a bit of an adjustment to the market as a result. But I think it's more of a reflection of just macroeconomic trends as well, right? Because everything's down, right? Like, yeah. you know, public, private, crypto, it doesn't matter. It's no different on the watch market or collectibles in general, but it is definitely a market. And I think that's the thing that is different that's never been considered in the past. When you look at some of the, you know, the sizable purchases that have been done at auction just in the past year, there was a Jackie Robinson 1947 debut card ticket stub, actually, that sold for 480000 right? This is in February, right? And then collector cars, there's this beautiful 1955 Mercedes, I think it was a 300 SLR. It went for like $142 million, right? Now, again, that's more of a mature collectible category. But then you look at like trading cards, like there's a Mickey Mantle, I think it was a 52 Tops that sold for like $12.6 million in August. And then the jersey that it's like got pumped up from the Last Dance documentary, Jordan's jersey from 1998, it went for like 10 million, right? I think that's just kind of a indicative of where the collectibles market is. Now, what's now the reality is that people have never seen collectibles in that light before, but now that it's gone a little bit more mainstream, just like you would any other asset class, people are taking a lot more time and sensitivity to protecting the stuff that they have. So that mm-hmm. the items that you've now paid. for a watch, it's suddenly worth 30 or 40, you're probably going to be a little bit more thoughtful about it, especially if you're, you know, collecting in mass. So that's really where the genesis of wax came about, where we're kind of focusing on collectors and addressing a problem that's been age old, right? Like collectibles has never been taken that seriously. Insurance carriers never really understood the value of these pieces. And now all of a sudden there's these massive spikes in value And that's kind of where we're kind of playing that role is to make sure we help all the carrier partners in bringing the best value to protect an item through insurance, but also being able to relate with them and know, say, hey, we understand what makes that watch special or that item special. And that's really why we're kind of built the way we are. So let me ask you this, Rich, because this is, I don't know if you know, do you know who Brandon Steiner is by any chance from Steiner Sports? I know of him. Yes. So this is a conversation I had with him too. And like, and something I find really interesting because like, we talk about like the Mickey Mantle baseball card. And you talk about the jersey. Like, in terms of like authentication, like how does that work with a lot of this stuff, right? Because if you're looking at it like, okay, if there's value to it, and you're going to ensure that value, well, who decides if it's real and if it's not? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's the right question. And look, there's some collectible categories are more complicated than others, and it all comes down to secondary market data and such that kind of leads to better authentication and understanding. So when you look at, you know, for us, for instance, if you come into our app and let's just say that you have two watches you're looking to insure, we always kind of default to what the user feels the value of the item is based on their knowledge of the secondary market. Because in many cases, these are people that are collectors, they're quite informed, they're educated, they're passionate, and there's just 
like a plentiful amount of secondary market data that allows us to validate that whether or not they're within a range of reason, right? Mm -hmm. So they're saying they want to insure these two watches at $50,000. We know really quickly based on our algorithms and whether or not it's realistic or if there's red flags that they're trying to insure it too highly, which is kind of the potential of a bad actor that might be looking to potentially file a fraudulent claim. This is all kind of built into our fraud mitigation algorithm. You know, for higher value items, there are, you know, very established authentication providers that get involved, right? Like when you're talking about a collector car or certain pieces for us, we have a level of trust up to a certain threshold, right? Let's just say that it's up to $100,000. You're coming in to, you know, protect a couple items within a couple minutes. And usually it could be as low as a minute. You'll get a quote and you could pay and, and be insured and protected for those items with literally within a minute. Now, if it's a larger size collection that might require appraisals or some authentication, we usually will take measures to make sure that these items are in fact legitimate. And that usually Mm -hmm. comes about through looking at papers, understanding whether or not they're all in order, more higher ticket items that are, you know, legitimately very difficult to appraise and authenticate. It's generally in the art world because like you're talking one of one masterpieces These are pieces that require like a Sotheby's to get involved to actually authenticate and appraise, right? But for everything else, generally speaking, we have a pretty good threshold to get people in and out through through the app. I know Major League Baseball was smart enough to put logos on all those additional balls that Aaron Judge was hitting to hit that 60-second home run. You know, Maybe sure. the Yankees can get a hold of it, resell that ball, and hopefully afford him next year. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. When, when I, I'm, I'm hurting if he leaves me next year, man. I really hope he doesn't go play for the Giants or something. But anyway, in terms of like looking at how wax works versus traditional insurance, because you are mm-hmm. insuring things that have you know, we've mentioned there kind of the value is depending on who values it, right? Like how valuable is it to a person? Like what does the market look like? So how does insuring one of your collectibles or one of these items on wax differ from traditional insurance? Yeah, it's the right question. So I think the important way of looking at it is also understanding the options that are out there today, right? Because mm-hmm. it's part of the reason why we were formed. When you look at today, the options are pretty much as follows. If you have an item of value, whether it's a watch or a piece of jewelry, generally speaking, you try to kind of file it under a a homeowner's policy, right? You get a rider, enforce that rider, you could protect that item. Now, the challenge with that, every state has its own rate cards. Everything is filed with the states, especially for admitted paper. It's a highly regulated space, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to say, well, rates for this company versus this one are just higher or lower. It's like, well, it all depends on the risk profile of where you live. Like somebody living in Montana versus somebody living in Brooklyn, New York, the rate structure is going to be very different. So for us, it's, we are backed by Chubb, right? It took us a while to get this backing. So think of us as kind of like a high-end broker agent, even though we're a venture-backed startup where we consider ourselves a tech company. If you distill it to what we really are, we're kind of like that front-end distribution side of what's a, what's Chubb? I haven't heard that term before. Yeah. So Chubb is the number one insurance carrier in the world. Mm. And they specialize in all the ultra high net worth individuals and below. So they're the people you want to be associated with then basically. Yeah. So these are the guys that basically carry the risk in the event of a claim. So let's mm-hmm. just say that, you know, you, God forbid, you get held up at gunpoint and you have your watch stolen 
we'll file a claim, it goes through Chubb, and you know, there's no risk of you not getting paid out, right? Like this is the why for a young startup. We don't need to have billions of dollars in the bank to cover claim payout. These guys kind of, they look after us and make sure that they do right by the clients. Now, that's such an important part of the story. The fact that we've been able to build a strong enough case to have somebody like Chubb to want to work with us, right? Because they mm-hmm. know we're so extraordinarily focused on the collectibles market, you know, even though they have the capability of handling it, they don't have the same language that we have. Like when we go out and have interactions with collectors, they know that we're also collectors. And that means yeah. something when you're engaging with these folks because you're speaking that same language. So that's how the relationship kind of works. We have the backing of Chubb. We focus on distribution, the user experience, the technology that we have. Users have the ability to kind of vault their items digitally. So let's just say you have a multi-million dollar collection, you come through our app and you could use it to kind of catalog your collection that you have. If you decide to insure it, cool. Just select the thing you want to insure within the app, follow you know a couple prompts and take a couple photos of your item. And before you know it, you check out and you get the coverage that you need. That is extraordinarily different than you know typical you know, homeowners where you're basically bundled with the home itself. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say that you have a claim on your watch through your homeowners. Well, that now forever, if you sell that watch, you decide to get rid of it, it follows your homeowner's policy. Yeah, and I don't know how traveler's insurance would feel about me doing that. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, well that's precisely right. So this is why we're kind of decoupling the products. We're providing a very niche product for very niche collectors that know what they're protecting and why. Right mm-hmm. now for lower valuable collectibles, like if you're just talking a couple thousand dollars, maybe it makes sense for you to just have it bundled with your homeowners. But if you're a serious collector where you're kind of growing your collection methodically and passionately, it should probably be decoupled with people that actually understand what you have. So let me ask you this, Rich. What about when values change like up or down? Like, I guess, how does that work in this world? Right. Because, you know, like economies can change, things can change, what people value can change. So I guess, how does that work with like how a product is insured? Yeah. So for us, we have, you know, the time of the insurance process, again, it's led by the insured and what they want to do and what they feel comfortable with. We will actively inform people on whether or not they should increase their coverage or decrease their coverage based on the fluctuating trends of market conditions, right? So and this has been especially true in the watch market because we have a do a he- we do have a healthy book of business on on the watch side, where you know over the past six to eight months there's a significant correction there where you know a Rolex Daytona white dial ceramic would at one point it peaked out at almost sixty thousand dollars like you could buy that watch for like eleven grand and it got to sixty thousand in the secondary market. It has since come back down to more reasonable levels, quote unquote, reasonable levels, right? Like mm. it's still about 30,000, 30, 35,000. So that is where it makes sense to just work with people that actually understand the value of these, these changing market conditions for collectibles. And that's a big part of what we're trying to kind of emphasize in the marketplace. The one thing I will kind of emphasize, kind of a bit of an aside, is that the community side of this thing cannot be understated. So for us, like we have great pride in the tech that we've built to just make it an exceptional user experience. And, you know, our, we started our business with insurance, but then we're moving on to other products such as lending, escrow services. We have like a laundry list. It all kind of revolves around 
the well, that was that was a question I had for you because I know yeah. like um like so like for example like you're talking about insurance like if you had a whole life policy right you could borrow against a whole life policy pay something pay the policy back can you do that with this type of insurance and then does that mean like I have to like give you the watch so that like you actually have the collateral or like how does that work well it's a completely separate I know it's probably a loaded but... question but <laughs> no 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 it's a good question because that's the way we think as well right it's mm-hmm. completely separate product in our business. Think of us as like corporate entity, wax, then there's wax insurance, then there's wax cap, and then there's going to be other entities as well that we spin up. Insurance, because it's such a heavily regulated market, it is its own thing. Cannot be commingling anything with insurance to do with lending. Like those are, yeah. that's a big no-no, big regulatory no-no. So on the lending side, we are exploring that product with a product called wax credit, where we're trying to kind of you know, democratize and create a non-shady, high-value version of a collateralized back solution, right? So if you think about, you know, today, if you look at private wealth banks, you got millionaires, billionaires that could very easily get a collateral-based loan on a $20 million Picasso, right? Like, and they'll get the loan out at like 2 to 4% interest is definitely much higher today, given the interest rates and what's going on. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to bring it down to a more accessible level. So if you sure. have, you know, $50 worth of collections, we'll give you an LTV where we'll get you somewhere between 50 to 60% of the value. We'll give you a loan and we will take possession of the item, right? We will. Yeah, I can imagine it. you have to, man, because you could, because yeah. somebody be like, sorry, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> there are other mechanisms that we've considered where they could retain it. But like, then we were like, okay, we don't want to get into the repo game. Like that sucks. Like nobody yeah. wants to do that. Anyway, so that's something that we've been piloting over the past couple months and it's it's proven to be effective. We have a couple other products we're being somewhat discreet on because we're going to launch them in the new year, but good traction, good progress in the marketplace thus far, for sure. So let me ask you this. You may have considered this. You may not have considered this. I'm just curious. So I'll go back to my friend, Dan, that collects watches. He's an artist as well. And one of the things he's worked with is like NFTs in relation to his art. Have you seen this kind of in the world of wax or have you not seen it yet of like NFTs associated with collectibles and things like that? Or is that not something that's come into your world yet? It certainly has. In fact, it was on our roadmap and I'm glad we were methodically patient before diving into it in light of this massive correction that happened in the NFT space. Yep. We still think that there's a market for it, right? Are we investing in it now? No. Right now, it doesn't make sense. I mean, as a you know seed stage startup, we have to be very ruthless with every dollar that we spend and making sure we get a return. And backing into the NFT space today, it's probably not the best bet for us at the time. Well, people are paying wild amounts of money for something that I'm like an emoji. And I'm like, why would you spend that much money for that? Like, well, it's the only one. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't mean I want it. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) it reached a level of absurdity that once you start, (laughs) like I knew it was going to take a big hit. Once you start receiving daily emails from people talking about their project for you to invest in with like scam like vibes, I'm like, oh, man, like you already know where this is going. Like. It became really clear. Now, that's not to say the underlying tech, the use cases will not continue to thrive on in many different ways. But as it was, no, like that ship has sailed. I do think it's something that has to evolve to kind of have, I guess, more future usefulness in a lot of ways. I'm curious for you, is there a most unique item that you got excited about in terms of like as a collector? In terms of 
Me collecting like, or maybe we... something you collect or maybe something. I don't know if you're allowed to disclose things wax is worked with, but that's why the only reason I don't know how to ask the question. <laughs> uh, yeah. We tend to be pretty, we have to be somewhat discreet. Now, that's now, what I, that's what I, so what is your favorite collectible item you've had? That I've had. <laughs> I mean, look, I, like I said, I'm big time watch collector and I no longer purchase watches just for the sake of purchasing them. Like sure. that used to be my MO maybe six, seven years ago. It's like, you just get hyped up on every piece. Now it needs to tie to an experience, a milestone, an achievement. Mm. That way I'm less likely to do something silly, like sell it, like, or consider flipping it. Cause I don't flip watches. Like I think out of all the years of collecting, I think I've, I've sold one for a profit and I sold it at such a low profit from where I could have mm-hmm. that it was more of like, I just needed to make room for another watch. So for me, like, okay, so maybe I'll share a little anecdote. It's less to do about this item and more about the backstory. You know, I have back in 2018, late 2018, I self-published a book called Discovering Time, stories from a, a collector community. And it's just basically a culmination of short stories, right? Of right. like my experience of being in this weird world, which at the time I didn't think many people knew about it. Now I think it's a little bit better known, but it's still pretty, it's pretty discreet. Like you don't know much about it. And I had gotten access to buying a watch. Like I mentioned that Rolex Daytona. So it's fresh in my mind where, but it had like a two-year wait list. And you basically could only get access to it if you're willing to spend a significant premium Long story short, a friend of mine had a connection. He's like, look, you could, you know, I got somebody that's willing to sell it to you, but you have to go fly to where it is. And mm-hmm. it just so happened to be in Switzerland. Wow. And I was like, oh man, like, all right, I guess I'm going to Switzerland for a long weekend just to buy a watch, which is kind of madness in its own right. I know it just sounds ridiculous, but that's what ended up happening, right? And But just prior to that, the week prior to departing from my flight, my dad had a heart attack, like a really bad heart attack to the point where it's like, this one might get him. And of course, like, you know, he's fine. He got through it, but I almost contemplated not going and just completely dismissing. Like, I'm like, this is stupid. My dad just had a heart attack. Life is way more important than a stupid inanimate object. But like in talking to him in the days leading up to the trip, like we had a pretty heartfelt conversation about the importance of f- focusing on your passions and just always moving. And long story short, I went to Switzerland to get this watch. And now whenever I look at that watch, I just think of my dad. It is now forever imprinted with my dad's DNA on it because of that experience that led up to it. And that's kind of how I purchase watches today. Like That's it, really I, cool though, I, because that's actually something I never thought about around like the things you collect, right? Like you collect these things, but those things also collect experiences. And yeah. I think that's a really, really cool concept. Yeah. And I see that within the community all the time. And like that story, that abbreviated version was one of the short stories that I shared in my book. And I have a bunch of them of like I've had wild meetups with people in Dubai and Switzerland where people that I never met in person and I just told them, I'm like, hey, I'm coming through. We're a fellow watch collector. And then they treat you like family. And it's like, that is wild. That is a wild <laughs> subculture to be part of. But like a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a community event that I got pulled into. It was called Watch Week, right? Like even though our business is all collectibles, of course, I nerd out on the watch stuff because it's like that's where I have my fun. 
And in, during Watch Week, it's just like a bunch of brands descend on New York and there's a bunch of events, there's brands are there to showcase their latest and greatest. And I got invited to like a fancy schmancy dinner, right? So it's about 16 people and a really impressive brand was there, like an independent brand called MBNF. It's one of the most exclusive brands you could think of, like the minimum price point to get into that watch is like a hundred grand. That's just the way it is, right? I think there's probably a slightly lower one at like 70 grand, but it's like, it's no joke. So these are all serious watch collectors at this event, plus the founder of MBNF. And, but I was sat next to two guys that clearly had never been to an event before. So, and I remember my feeling of going to these events in the past. I'm like, it is weird. So I took it upon myself. I'm like, I'm going to be their Sherpa for this event and explain that this is not <laughs> you weird. Look like, you guys look like you desire a Sherpa. I'm your man. <laughs> I'm going to help you out and show like, this is not as weird as it is. Like, let's yeah. I'll work you through this experience. And one of them in particular, I became very friendly with. We were just chatting all night. We we're having drinks. It was really lovely. And then at one point, you know, he's like, hey, you know, he, he made a comment about liking hockey. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Do you play for fun? Just like keeping the flow going, like the energy going. He's like, well, like it, I, it's kind of my job. And I'm like, huh, what, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I, I'm, I'm the captain for the New York Rangers. And, and I was like, oh, Oh, so it's like, it really is your job. And you're like really good at said job. Like, I love that story because that is the beauty of these meetups. Because like socioeconomics are just cast aside. It doesn't yeah. matter whether you're a multimillionaire or you have a $200 watch. If you're into this, you could connect with people at very different levels of life and have a really enjoyable experience and conversation. And, you know, I'm really pumped. Like, if I ever write a second book, that whole story would definitely make it in. It's like a Paul Harvey story. I don't remember if you remember Paul Harvey, where he t tells the whole story and then he gives you the name at the end. And you're like, and now. The oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like yeah. very similar. Well, yeah. Rich, this has been an awesome conversation, man. I've had a really great time chatting with you. For people listening, if they want to find out more about you or they want to find out more about what you're doing at Wax, how's the best way to do that, man? I mean, I would just go to, to check out wax.insure. You can Google wax insurance. And we'll keep it very simple. If you do those two things and you're interested in protecting the things that you love, give us a shot and we'll see if we can help you out. Very cool. Rich Vinhays, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. Pleasure, Jeremy. Cheers.